Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Most of the time, my workday starts with this sound. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. For many more Americans, it sounds something like this. Few people like commuting, but have you ever thought about how your trip to work affects your job and your life? This is Game Plan. Hi, I'm Francesca Levy. And I'm Rebecca Greenfield. And today we're talking about commuting. Becca, how was your commute this morning? It was a cliche of a bad <laughs> New York City commute. Why don't you do the thing that everybody says you shouldn't do and tell me about how bad your commute was? Yeah, sorry. I'm going to root talk. You're going to have to hear it. I mean, it was like got on my regular train. That train got out of service because I later learned there was a track fire. Got into the other train, which is a much slower commute. And at every station stop, it was like some mumbled reasoning of why we were stopped. Yeah. I don't know why. And like an hour and 15 minutes later, I got to work, which is like double the time it normally takes me. So it was frustrating. It was bad. I did get a seat eventually because I was on the train for so long. But um, yeah, it was just I was knew I was coming in to talk about commuting yeah. and <laughs> I knew I'd have a place to air those grievances. So thank you for listening. How was your commute? Uh, my commute actually was was okay this morning oh, because well, I for sorry you. <laughs> I did I left a little early this morning. I'm glad I did because I came in and and I came into like a page of emails from people explaining how they were stuck on the train and it's like and this happens when I have worked places um, where I would have to drive and the the same thing happens you you have this nightmare commute you lose all this time that you wanted to spend at work getting stuff done and then you lose more time when you get to work because you're commiserating with your coworkers about how terrible the commute was because everyone else had the same experience. Commuting is just this universal thing that connects us all because we hate it and it makes our lives terrible. Yeah, and there have been a lot of articles about how in New York City, specifically this summer, it's the summer of hell. There's yep. a lot of repairs happening for commuters who come into New York City, but then also the subway just happens to be breaking down a lot, making yeah. things even worse. But commuting in general is not like a New York City-specific frustration. No, and we have it bad, but the whole country spends a lot of time getting to work. And the average American spends 25 minutes getting to work, and most of those people are doing it in a car by themselves. So more than three quarters of people, around 76 or 77 percent, are driving solo to work. And then a uh, little less than 10 percent carpool, 
five percent use public transportation and then every other way of getting to work from like not going anywhere because you work from home to walking or biking. Those are all less than five percent each. I would argue that 25 minutes in a car is equal to or worse than 40 minutes on the subway. Yeah. Well, so there's pros Stuck and in cons. Traffic. Yeah. And also remember, like 25 minutes is the average, which means a lot of people are spending way more time. And then some people and then a lot of people are spending way less time. But yes, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Like in the subway, you could read a book or a newspaper or Get play work a game done. on your phone. Frantically email your colleagues they are running late. Well, you be- if you have Wi-Fi. True. But I feel like if you're in a car stuck in traffic, you could at least like get on a conference call. Mm. Maybe. And I don't you're know. not around a bunch of other cranky people. Yes. You're you're in your own space. You have music. And like maybe there's more of a sense of control. When I've been stuck in this summer of hell, I've been part of a couple of severe delays where you're just trapped underground. You have that unique New York feeling of being in darkness with no explanation why in an aluminum can with a bunch of other people. Bleak. And you just feel so helpless and out of control. At least you have some illusion in a car of having some control because you can like move your car forward two feet every 15 minutes. So if I were a person who really cared about commuting, it was like my number one thing for finding a job. Are there places where it is better than other places? Yeah. So counties in New York are unsurprisingly among the worst places for commuting. So are some counties in California, um, Los Angeles and the Bay Area. And then all of the best places to commute are pretty far flung rural areas like in Alaska, where the population density is really low. And so basically people just aren't traveling that far to get to work. There also arguably aren't as many jobs in places right. like yeah. that. The solution to your commute is probably not moving to Alaska. Um, so we all know commuting is annoying and it's fun to complain about what a bad commute you have. But there are other bad things about commuting you might not even think about. For one thing, it's actually bad for your health. There was a UK study that showed that people who spend more than a half hour getting to work are more likely to have depression. They're more likely to have financial problems and have more work-related stress. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, it's affecting your life. And if you think about it, it's not that crazy. I mean, this is a big chunk of time. Even if you spend the average 25 minutes getting to work, that's almost an hour every day that you spend on your journey to and from work. And it's kind of dead time. And it's either like at best it's neutral. You got to work without any problems, but you kind of lost that time. And at worst, it's this nightmare that like in your case today gets you to work late and feeling PO'd. Very. And I never really think of commuting as being bad for my health, but more I'm more annoyed in the way it affects my work day. And how I have to shuffle everything around and sometimes I have to cancel meetings and sometimes people cancel on me. I read in a Bloomberg article that the summer of hell is costing Manhattan employers $14.5 million for every hour train commuters are delayed. And there have been all these articles about uh, people losing jobs and people missing job interviews. And there was that it was a feel good viral news story about that guy who like they held a graduation ceremony for him. On the subway because he missed his graduation right. ceremony because of the delay. And that's you have sweet. to have your major life milestones on the subway. Right. But that does, that's happening regularly. And I think it's a big problem for not just employers, but people trying to do their jobs. Yeah. So these huge 
effects of commuting seem like they would be top of mind when we are picking a new job or deciding where we're going to live. But I feel like most of us just kind of accept our commute as a fact of life. And if it takes you an hour to get to work or if it's a really frustrating 45 minutes on the subway, that's just the way it has to be. But we wanted to find out how exactly things got this way and what, if anything, can be done to make it better. And that's what our guest is going to talk to us about. Richard Florida is an urban studies theorist. He's a professor at the University of Toronto and author of many books, including The New Urban Crisis. Welcome, Richard. Uh, It's great to be with you. Um, Let's get started just by asking, why does it take Americans as long as it does to get to work? Well, you know, I think Americans have been fascinated with the idea of uh, buying, uh, I guess, a less expensive house on the one hand, or a a home uh, in, in the bucolic suburbs. So, you know, beginning, I'm assuming, sometime in the, in the beginning of the 20th century, this idea is that you could live far away from work, or, and at that time, take a subway or a train to work, or then more recently, drive your car to work. Uh, and that was something you did to have the suburban lifestyle or the size of home that, that you want. Uh, the point of fact is, though, you know, according to nearly every study of the subject I've read, and trust me, I've read a lot of them, the single thing you can do to make yourself the most miserable is endure a long commute to and from work. So so maybe we have to begin to rethink that. So has the American relationship to the car changed as commutes have gotten worse? Well, I, I think so. You know, um, my father, who was born in the 20s, certainly saw the car, you know, and he talked to me a lot about that. Uh, as his escape from Newark, uh, New Jersey, as his escape from the old Italian village, you know, with grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles looking over their shoulder at you, he, he didn't feel like he had freedom. And the car for him as a young person, you know, as a young factory worker, blue collar worker, was a way to have some fun. Uh, and then when he got married, you know, it was a way to move to a bedroom, working class bedroom suburb of Newark uh, and, and raise his family the way he, he, he and my mom saw fit. Um, and certainly for me and people of my generation, you know, uh, baby boomers, the car was also, you know, I, I was so mad at myself when I was a young person. I didn't have much money. I worked summer jobs. I had to help put myself through college. But, you know, people had these, you know, Camaros and you can tell I'm a kid from New Jersey, Thunderbirds and and all of this kind of thing. And I felt so bad and inadequate because I couldn't afford a car. In fact, I couldn't afford a car until I graduated and got my Ph.D. And at that point, all I could afford was a little measly Toyota Tercel. And I guess I felt inadequate. But but today, you know, the people I teach, the people I teach in university, they don't want a car. And I think that's the big change, you know, and and they say, you know, for them, a car is just a part. It's a financial burden. And, and anyway, you know, if they want to go out and have fun at night, what kind of lunatic would drive a car then? They want to ride their bicycle or live close enough to walk or or take transit. So I, I do think, you know, this shift isn't isn't the majority. You know, I, look, 75 or 80 percent of Americans still drive a, a car to work alone by themselves. And. Of course, those numbers are very different in the New York metropolitan area than anywhere else, where many more people walk a bicycle. And certainly, um, you know, a, a large share of people take transit of one sort of another to go to work. But but it's very interesting when you look at it. The people who, who, who take transit or bicycle to work, it's actually very bifurcated. 
they're they're either relatively affluent people or, or they're not affluent people, they're economically disadvantaged. And where it really strikes me is so interesting is that's particularly true of people who bike to work. You know, the image, the image of people biking to work are, you know, um, young millennials and, and yuppies with a scarf around their neck and, and a, you know, a saddlebag, a leather saddlebag riding a Dutch bike, you know, one of these handcrafted Dutch bicycles to their graphic design job. And, and certainly that's true. You know, you have a greater percentage of people making over $100,000 a year biking to work. But, the, but, but there's also a great percentage of people making under $10,000 a year biking to work. So, so the very interesting thing that, that, that these alternative modes of transportation are something that either the very affluent use uh, or the very poor use. You've talked about changing preferences, how the younger people you teach are, they want to take transit. Are cities changing to accommodate these preferences? Um, not fast enough. I mean, we, we really in the United States have, have not invested in our transit infrastructure for a century. One of the things I point out in, in my book, The New Urban Crisis, the reason why uh, real estate around transit stops, uh, it, close into the city center, of course, but around transit subs, around subway stops, around rail hubs is becoming so valuable is because there's so few of them. Um, and, you know, according to really recent and important research, what's, what, what is really driving people back to cities, oh, well, there's a better, you know, there's a lot of good job opportunities there and there's fun to be had and there's great restaurants and great amenity. But one of the big things is to keep their commute short and to stay out of a car. So one, they have a more enjoyable life, they get more done, but, but more importantly, they get more time to spend with their friends and family, which is very valuable. So they want to keep their commute short. And if they can't walk close enough to work to be able to walk to work, they want to be near transit so they don't have to endure a long and, and again, very painful, psychically painful uh, car commute. How does commuting affect not only the decisions people make about where they work, but their jobs overall? Well, company after company that I talk to tell me they're moving out of suburb X in XYZ metropolitan area back to the urban center, not only because there are more people living in downtown and more things to do downtown, uh, because it's an easier commute. There's much more transit connectivity. People can take a train or a bus and they can get there from any part of their city or metropolitan region. So I think we're seeing a, a big movement. You know, in my own research, I've documented that now well more than half of all tech startups uh, which used to be completely and entirely located in suburban offices, complexes, you know, these so-called nerdistans where the high-tech engineers wanted to drive their fancy sports cars or hepped-up SUVs. Now more than half of those startups are in urban centers like lower Manhattan or the downtown parts of San Francisco. So I think you've seen a big shift uh, over, the, over the past years. The, the problem is there really is a class divide here. Um, the people who are most likely to be able to walk to work or, or, or take a quick one-stop transit ride to work, you know, under a half an hour, under 20 minutes, tend to be affluent, highly educated people. Um, you know, and then the, the middle class, if you will, and the middle class in smaller metros drive their car. Now, and the people who are stuck with these heinous and horrendous transit commutes, you know, like two buses, a train, a subway, and a long walk – are the less advantaged and the, and the disadvantaged and the poor. And, you know, I also hear this all across the country 
you know, the people who are working in our schools, the people who are working as firefighters and EMTs, the people who are working in retail shops and restaurants, they're enduring uh, two and three hour commutes. Are there any companies or cities or communities doing anything to make commuting more egalitarian? Well, you know, this is something I'm actually writing about now because I, I really believe that as we've revived our cities and our communities, we've created a, a prosperity which is winner take all and uh, that has benefited the advantaged third um, of knowledge workers, professionals, highly educated people in our society, with 66 being left further behind. And one of the cases I'm trying to make is that it's, it's, it's really incumbent upon anchor institutions, I, I, medical centers, hospitals, universities, uh, but also high-tech companies, high-tech companies and real estate development companies to, to, to engage in this. And, you know, in, in San Francisco, um, really, people got very upset with the tech companies and, and techies not only colonizing downtown, but then running their private shuttle buses. Uh, to the, the corporate complexes of Yahoo and Google and Apple in the Silicon Valley. And there were very virulent protests over those. And in fact, there was a ballot measure that fortunately was defeated because it was, it was not, not a good thing to, 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 to go after high-tech companies that are so innovative and so important to creating jobs and wealth. But a, a ballot measure that wanted to prohibit high-tech companies from locating in the downtown areas of San Francisco. And so, but so it's it's incumbent, I think, on these companies to to, to stop the you know they, people view private shuttle buses as selfish because they are. Um, the better thing to do, and Google is now considering a new campus in downtown San Jose near a transit hub, uh, and and also providing affordable housing as part of that, and workforce housing as part of that. But but really, I think the key here is is for these companies to see to be beginning to think that they're going to have to invest in transit options that are publicly shared to work with state and local government and where you still possibly can federal agencies uh, to make sure that you have the public transit infrastructure you need that not only serves your employees, uh, but 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 serves people broadly. So I think this is a slow a slow dawning awareness, but but I can see, you know, I can see the wheels ticking uh, with companies, communities, anchor institutions now saying we all have to buck up um, to do things to one, provide housing, more affordable housing and workforce housing closer to where people work uh, to provide better jobs on these sites for service workers, but also to work to ways to make public transit uh, work better. In Miami Beach, um, where this problem has kind of reached ahead, uh, with terrible traffic in South Florida, you know, the mayor of Miami Beach uh, actually created a trolley service uh, because they couldn't get the line, you know, across the bay from Miami. The, the, the governor, the darn governor didn't want the high speed rail, which is now being built by by private sector investors. But he actually put in place it wasn't a trolley. It's like a little bus that looks like a trolley. And um, the people who work in the service industries use that trolley like crazy as a way to get up and down Miami Beach to go from an apartment or if they take other transit onto the beach, I think it's 25 cents. And the other thing that they're doing in Miami Beach that I think is really fascinating is there there's a proposal now to convert many of the city owned parking garages into affordable housing. That, that does not mean living in a parking stall. What they're going to do is build on top of the garages and they're going to add, you know, they're going to have parking and then add on top of the garages affordable housing units. So you can see in city after city, people beginning to think about what we can do, small steps first, but to begin to, to grapple with some of these problems. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So uh, we've heard from you a little bit about what cities have done and can do more of and what individual companies can do. Is there anything that as an individual worker you can do to make your commute better, especially if you are not graced with a really high income? Well, I, I wrote a whole book on this called Who's Your City? And the theme of that book was that, you know, it's up to you to pick the best place for you to live and work. And, and most of us don't, you know. Most, they call it uh, drive till you qualify. Oh, I want a house and it has to have a yard and I'm going to drive far because it's more affordable the further I get from the city center. Or we go visit a friend or a cousin. Oh, it looks nice here. The park was okay. My friend lived here. I liked it. And no one really does this calculation. I should, very few people do this calculation of, you know, when I locate myself, when I pick a city to live in or a neighborhood within a city, what is that going to cost me? How long is my commute going to be? What's it going to be like on a daily basis? And I noticed recently someone wrote an article in the New York Times. It was a young woman living in New York City and said, you know, I'm going to go test drive a few suburbs. It's exactly the phrase I used in this book, Who's Your City? I said, before you spend all of this money on a home or a new rental, you know, moving all of your goods in a moving van, setting up a house that you're, you're kind of stuck in, whether you rent it for at least a year, but if you own it longer than that, uh, go test drive the darn place. See if you like the neighborhood. Try the commute a couple of times and not, you know, at, 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 at 11 o'clock in the morning. Try it during rush hour and see what it's like. You know, people drive out there in the middle of the day on a Saturday and they go, oh, it's great. I love it. And then Monday morning comes and they're stuck in traffic for an hour and a half. So I think we owe it to ourselves. I, I actually think it's the most important decision we make. You know, it's as important as the job and career we do. It's as important as the person we take as our life partner. We give those two things at least a measure of thought. We give very little thought. We just make snap decisions when it comes to where we live. So that's what I think. And, and really think about it, you know, and try it. Don't, you know, maybe if you think about it, it's one thing. Go try the darn commute. And, and that goes with a car. And, you know, I remember... A couple of times thinking, you know, I lived in a place where I could take transit and I wouldn't have to drive. And then I went and tried out the transit commute, you know, after I had moved. And it was like two and a half hours because the subway didn't connect to the bus. The bus didn't connect to the subway. Something else was delayed. So whether it's a car commute or a transit commute, try the, try the thing out and, and see how you really like doing it. And I don't mean just try it out once. Try it out for a little while and see if it fits you, if it's making you miserable. If it's making you miserable, uh, rethink where you might want to live. Yeah, Francesca and I were just talking about how I never consider commutes times when I'm looking for apartments, and I've certainly paid for it. And I think many people think the commute will just sort of work itself out. It'll get figured out, um, but it doesn't. And it's, and it's really the thing you do 
Well, some of us do every day. Others of us do it less frequently, but we have to do it. It's probably also something people should think about, not just when they're considering a new home, but considering a new job, which probably yeah. people people don't take into consideration nearly as much. No, people get all excited um, with the new job and the new home because the grass is always greener and it always looks better. And they never think about, well, what is that going to do to my day-to-day routine? But yes, I think I think being close to where you work or close enough to have a reasonable commute is something both in terms of getting a house and in terms of getting a job. The two sides of that so-called journey to work, where you live and where you work, um, are critical. Well, thank you so much for sharing your uh, thoughts with us. Thank you. This is a really great subject, and thanks for having me on. As it becomes harder and harder to live near where we work, we're seeing companies create some of the solutions to commuting as a way to attract employees. Facebook, for example, is building this huge campus, and it's going to subsidize housing for employees nearby. So it's trying to encourage people to live in an area they might not want to. They probably want to live in the hub of the city, but they can instead be really close to work and not pay that much for housing. So hopefully they don't have this soul-sucking and time-consuming commute. Yeah, we need big solutions. Like there's only so much that individuals can do because, as you say, we're moving farther and farther from where we work and that isn't likely to change. So the problems kind of have to be solved at the company level or at the city level, like what Facebook and Miami Beach are doing, rather than individuals being responsible for making their own commute better. Although, as he said, thinking about where you're going to live and where you're going to work a little more carefully is important if you can do it. And there's probably some ways you can make a terrible commute slightly less terrible. Becca, you told me you actually kind of don't mind commuting, right? Well, I consider it work time a little bit. You know, I listen to our episodes and edit them or I do emails. And I know a lot of people that might, if they're teachers, great papers on the train. So I think if you do reframe it as productive time, then it doesn't feel so horrible when you're getting into work an hour later. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's one important thing is actually keeping track of how much time you spend in your car or on the subway and not imagining that that time is just like disappearing time. For me, it's almost two hours of out of every day. So I should think a little more carefully about how I'm spending it and maybe not spend so much time playing phone games. And now it's time for Half Big Takes. Half-Baked Takes. You can call us with your Half-Baked Take. Leave a voicemail at 212-617-0166. And this week's listener Half-Baked Take is on topic. It's about commuting. So my Half-Baked Take is when you're commuting to work on the subway in the morning and it's really crowded um, and you have all those people standing up, when people sitting down try to get up before the subway stops, and everyone standing has to make extra room for them. I feel like everyone should just stay seated and stay in their place until the subway stops, and then everyone can get off. It just makes for an easier commute when the when the subways are really crowded. Anyway, really enjoy the show. Thanks. I'm reacting viscerally to this because I have very strong feelings of agreement. Um, I think it's basic subway etiquette. People, do not stand up while the train is still moving. You will fall over on top of somewhere somewhere else. And the laws of physics state that uh, people won't dematerialize and they can't get off the train and get out of your way. So no one's going anywhere. I think there's a whole genre 
of where to stand on subways, getting on, getting off behavior that could be some really good half-baked take material. So. Yeah, I think us, us New Yorkers are very uh, adamant about our subway etiquette. Probably car commuters have their own things, yeah. too. Yeah, like, don't cut me off, man. Becca, what unbaked idea do you want to share with us this week? Mine is about the spelling of your and your, mm-hmm. apostrophe R-E, and the other one. And I think we need to be nicer to people who make that mistake. This is shocking coming from a journalist. Like, okay, it's just sometimes your fingers just type something. It's true. Too fast, hit enter. You're not thinking. It's not, Does I don't think it's a marker of your intelligence. I think Y-O-U-R. that's- Y-O-U-R. If you spell, if you mix them up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it could be a marker of Y-O-U apostrophe yes. R-E intelligence. Yes. I mean, I just, yeah, I think we, there's a couple spelling errors like that, that people- There, get, there, and there, yeah. to- Two and two. Yeah, that people yeah. get up in arms over. And I just don't think that it's meaningful at all. Well, yes. if And, and you know the difference between a chronic uh, yeah. er- error maker and, and someone who's just had a brain fart. I've done yeah, it myself, and I'm familiar with the horror that comes over you after you've sent someone a text that's like, no, it's your turn to do this, but yeah. you spell it with an apostrophe. And you're like, how did I do that? I know better. Yeah, but you just did it, and it doesn't mean anything. And we should be nicer to people who do it. It happens to the best of us. I'm certain the smartest person in the universe has done it. So that's my half big take. Francesca, what is your not done idea for this week? I'm struggling to justify this as at all work-related, but it's definitely half-baked. But okay, so maybe it's work-related if you imagine that like you might be at a company picnic or work event and you are compelled to take a picture with somebody you don't know that well, like your company CEO or something, right? What do you do? You smile for the camera and you put your arms around each other. You put one arm around them and they put one arm around you. Like a half hug. Yeah. Don't you think that's kind of weird that that's the (laughs) default photo pose? Because it's kind of intimate. But if you were to like, okay, the reason this came up is because I saw a Facebook photo of somebody I know who works in the music industry posing with Bonnie Raitt. And my first instinct was to be like, oh, wow, him and Bonnie Raitt must be really close. But then I was like, no, that's just how you stand for photos. Bonnie Raitt put, you know, was kind enough to take a picture with him and put his her arm around him. But, like, I don't stand around with my arm around you in the office or any coworkers Mm-mm. or even my friends. Like, it's sort of an intimate pose, don't you think? Yeah, I think that there's some another show out there that could really dig into the history of why we stand like I'm this. I'm sure that I would podcast listen exists. to it on my commute. Yeah, but you can't, I mean, it would be terrible if you were... If you were like, oh, will you take a picture with me? And then the person just like stood by your side with their yeah. arms at their sides. So you have to do it. But it, it does suggest like this closeness that I mean, you yeah, don't you're necessarily touching someone have. you probably have never touched before. Yeah. And you Sometimes have to like awkwardly figure out where to put that hand. Yeah. I was I'm always I'm obvious. Yeah. I'm very bad at it. You yeah. can imagine. Yep. Just something I noticed. And I guess this has been Half Big Takes. Half Big Takes. Thank you for listening to Game Plan. You can find me on Twitter at Francesca Today. And I'm at RZ Greenfield. And you can call into our hotline with anything you want at 212-617-0166. We also have a weekly newsletter. You can find it at Bloomberg.com slash newsletters. You check the Game Plan box and you'll get a sweet email from us. Couldn't be easier. If you like our podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and rate review, subscribe 
do one or all three of those things. It would make us so happy. This show is produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Henriksen. The head of podcast is Alec McCabe. And we'll see you next week. Bye. It's our new, that's our new contest. We're going to try to sneak t- tongue twisters into unique New York, unique New York. Okay. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.